The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. Let's uh, take our Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 11. When Daniel mentioned the sermon this morning, he failed to mention it should be called All Israel Shall Be Saved, Part 3. All right? Verse 25. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed or ignorant of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. So in 19, no, 1829, a young Scottish pastor by the name of Robert Murray McShane, McShane's going to actually be our subject for our Reformation lecture this year, young Robert Murray McShane picks up a book that had been compiled and put together by Jonathan Edwards a century before in the life of David Brainerd. And McShane reads the life of David Brainerd and is, his heart is ignited with a passion for missions. And in fact, as McShane continues to read and study, he begins to develop not just a passion for missions, but a passion for missions among the Jewish people of the world. And so, this young, physically weak and frail pastor decides that he and three other friends would go on a journey on behalf of the Church of Scotland to see what the state of Jewish missions was. And so McShane and a dear friend of his, Andrew Bonar, and a couple other friends actually traveled and made it to Jerusalem. In Jerusalem at that time, there were probably about 10,000 Jewish inhabitants. One of the things that, that McShane noticed was the incredible anti-Semitism wherever he went, whether it was among the Turks or especially, he said, among the Roman Catholics, the Greek Orthodox, and the Armenian Orthodox churches, the anti-Semitism was rampant. And so they ministered in Jerusalem. The Jewish people that were in Jerusalem were fairly closed to 
to the message, and, and so they continued on in their journey. McShane is suffering terribly this, this whole time. He will end up dying at age 29. But he ends up just having these terrible fevers, these blinding headaches, and yet he continues on in the mission, and they end up going to Poland. And in 1829, Poland had more Jewish people than any other country in the world. And what he saw there was actually more anti-Semitism. Now, McShane loved his Hebrew Bible, and he excelled in Hebrew Bible, and it actually helped bridge a gap with those Jewish people that he met when he spoke Hebrew to them. And McShane developed a burden to see the Jewish people come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Messiah. One of the things that that compelled him were not only specific Old Testament prophecies, but in particular, Romans chapter 11. Now, while McShane is, is away, you have to understand he doesn't get on a plane and doesn't get there in, in 20 hours. He has to go by, by, by a ship. And so while he's away, ministering, seeking to get a lay of the land, Um, among the Jewish people in his own congregation in Dundee, Scotland, revival breaks out. And in fact, the revival has its epicenter at Dundee, but it spreads throughout the churches in Scotland. And McShane took that as a signal blessing of the Lord for their efforts to reach the Jewish people. He believed it happened in his absence as he was ministering to the Jewish people to demonstrate that such, an, such missionary endeavor was blessed and owned by God and that in seeking to do good to the Jewish people, God would continue to bless his church. McShane comes back home and even in his continued weakened state, he and his good friend Andrew Bonar travel all around Scotland telling people about the, the, the fields that are white for harvest among the Jewish people throughout the world. And what's interesting is that they had taken a, um, an offering for uh, outreach to the Jewish people around 1828. After McShane and Bonar go through Scotland, they do another countrywide uh, 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 offering that raises over four times that original amount. And it is out of that that the Scottish church, the Church of Scotland, ends up launching a specific outreach, sending missionaries to live among Jewish people to preach to them the everlasting gospel of Jesus the Messiah. At the heart of it was Romans 11. And so, last week... I had a couple of people come up to me afterwards and said, um, that was like drinking out of a fire hose. Could you um, review next week? And one of those people was, of course, my dear wife. And I said, well, of course. And um, so we get to Romans eleven twenty-five. And right in the middle of that text, it tells us 
Well, I don't want you to be unaware or uninformed, brethren, of this mystery. So we have this mystery so that you won't be wise in your own estimation. That's the ethical emphasis all through Romans 11, that the Gentiles who have been grafted in by grace alone would not actually become proud over the branches that had been cut off, that is the Jewish people, and that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and then 26a, and so, or in this way, all Israel will be saved. So there's three parts to the mystery. One commentator on Romans, Colin Cruz, he makes this point. He says, the essential point of the mystery is not found in any one of the three aspects, but rather in the whole sequence of these interdependent events. And so the first part of the mystery is a partial hardening has come upon Israel. Paul's already expounded that in Romans 11. And when he says partial, he means that first of all, in a sense that not all Israelites were hardened. He actually would be an exception. He identifies himself as an exception, but it's also partial in the sense that it is not permanent. And we know it's not permanent because of the second part of the mystery, which is this, until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. So partial hardening has come uh, to Israel, first part of the mystery, second part, until, that is there's a termination point to that partial hardening, until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And so when Paul talks about the fullness of the Gentiles, he's talking about the full number of the Gentiles that God has chosen. And this goes all the way back to um, Romans chapter 9, 22 to 24, where he's not only chosen among the Jewish people, but he's also chosen the Gentiles. And he actually incorporates them, brings them in to that olive tree. So the second part of the mystery is until the fullness of the Gentiles. So there's a Gentile mission that's going on. Once that is innocence complete, then third part of the mystery and thus, or in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, Colin Cruz again makes the comment. He says, what is surprising about this mystery, right? Mystery is something that was concealed, but is now revealed What is surprising about this mystery is that it constitutes a reversal of Jewish expectations. In other words, the entry of the Gentiles into salvation would precede that of Israel, not vice versa. So that's the mystery. That's the three parts. Then we have three questions that immediately arise. One, who is all Israel? Right? That's a good question. Who is all Israel? Second question, how will they be saved? I think that's a good question too. Right? And then third, when <laughs> will they be saved? All right? So, real simple. Who, how, and when? All right? So, this is what we're going to review from last week. So, I can't promise I'll slow down, but I can say that drinking out of the fountain hose a second time, you're kind of used to it. So, so there's, been, there's been about five or six views throughout church history. There's only three that are plausible, all right? Um, and the first is this. 
All Israel is a reference to spiritual Israel. And by spiritual Israel, the idea there is the elect of God made up of both Jew and Gentile. Now, this view, by the way, this was Calvin's view. This view rightly affirms that Gentiles belong to the Israel of God. All right? Paul has been absolutely unambiguous about that in Romans. Uh, he's unambiguous about it in, in a lot of other pa- passages as well. Um, in fact, Ephesians chapter 2 is one that just stands out. And uh, if you just take a look at this real quick... Ephesians chapter 2, so this is what I'm demonstrating is that Gentiles have been brought into, um, into Israel and there is genuinely such a thing as spiritual Israel made up of the elect of God, both Jew and Gentile. And so Paul says in Ephesians 2.11, therefore remember that you, that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were, notice this language, at one time or at that time, separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. All right? So, for Paul, one of the great questions to always ask is, what time is it? Right? So when Paul's talking in the past, that's what he's doing here. And so he's saying to the Gentiles, there was a time formerly when you actually were, and then notice those five things that I, that I said, separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, verse 13, but now... So there's this massive shift. This is what you once were, but now things have changed. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were, past tense, far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups, Jew-Gentile, into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. And he might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, having put to death the enmity, that is the enmity that existed horizontally between Jew and Gentile. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. Peace to far off, Gentiles. Peace to those who were near, the Jews. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer strangers or aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Okay, Absolutely stunning. In other words, all the stuff that you didn't used to be 
all the things that you formerly were, separated from Christ, cut off from the commonwealth, all that, all that's been magnificently reversed with a humongous but now, and you've been now brought into the household of faith with Jew and Gentile into one new man, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building, Jew, Gentile, being fit together is growing into a holy temple. Gentiles in the temple, egads in the Lord, in whom you are being built together in the dwelling of God in the spirit. So the view that says all Israel is Jew and Gentile, the elect of God brought into one body, that that idea is taught in the scriptures. But the question is, is that what Paul is saying here? And I want to say, no. All right. So it's true. Spiritual Israel is a reality. But such a view in understanding all Israel shall be saved is just the elect of God, Jew, Gentile, minimizes the strong distinction all the way through Romans 11 between Jew and Gentile, and then it diminishes, so pardon the expression, but it diminishes the salvific interplay between Jew and Gentile. Cut off, grafted in, you can be cut off, they can be regrafted in. There is this ricocheting grace between Jew and Gentile. So if Paul's just talking about the elect, really Jew, Gentile with no distinction, Romans 11 doesn't make any sense. And so ethnic Israel has been the focus from the beginning. And to switch here to spiritual Israel would seem to break the flow of the argument. Especially, I pointed this out last week, especially in verses 25 and 26. A partial hardening has happened to Israel. What Israel must be in view in verse 25? And the answer is ethnic Israel. That's who the partial hardening has come upon. And then to turn around and then say, and so all Israel, and use Israel like five words later with a completely different meaning seems to me to actually violate the flow of thought in the text. All right? Okay. Now, I don't feel strongly about these things. (laughs) Charles Cranfield, he says that all Israel here does not include Gentiles. It's virtually certain. Okay? Second view of all Israel all elect Israelites. So this would be the view of the ethnic remnant of Jewish people throughout history. Now the strength of this view, so in other words, this view says, first part of Romans 11, God's always had a Jewish remnant. Had one during Elijah's day, has one during today, He will always have a Jewish remnant, and it's in that way that all the Jewish remnant of Israel will be saved. In other words, there's just a steady trickling stream of of elect uh, uh, Jewish people that are brought in that are saved. And so this view has a number of strengths to it. First of all, it does rightly emphasize ethnic 
Israelites. And it also capitalizes on Paul's first point, which is God has not rejected his people. Look at me. Look back to Elijah's day. Okay? So the olive tree, the branches are, are kind of grafted back in a few at a time throughout history. He's had that remnant. He has that remnant. He'll always have that remnant. All right? So that's, that's the view that I used to, that I used to hold. And although this view has strengths, it does not make enough out of Paul's explosive, much more than language. It it minimizes, it in a sense, it sort of flatlines the, the, the force of Paul's argument when he says, so how much more? Lesser to the greater. How much more will their fulfillment be? How much more will their fullness be? That seems to me more than, hey, it's always been a trickle. It's still a trickle. It always will be a trickle. To me, how much more than means you're going to come to some point where you get more than a trickle. Oh, my watch is telling me I got to slow down. All right. (laughs) At least it didn't think I fell over. So, how much more will their fulfillment be? Seems to me more than just a trickle. What will their acceptance be but life from the dead? I mean, this this is talking like resurrection proportion. And it seems that Paul is expecting more than a small remnant. All right? So, number three. All ethnic Israel is a reference to the ethnic majority at the end of the age. The ethnic majority at the end of the age. In other words, what what I'm going to argue tentatively, I'm not going to, this is in the hill that I'm going to die on. I'll get wounded, but I won't die on it. Is that what Paul has in mind is a period at the end of the age where there is a fullness, life from the dead, a much more than at the end of the age where you end up having the overwhelming majority of ethnic Israelites coming to faith in Jesus. So this view has the strength of one, staying focused on ethnic Israel. John Murray says, all Israel refers to the mass of Israel in contrast with merely the remnant. Okay, so this view also has the strength of taking the um, salvation historical twists and turns of Romans 11. And so what this view would say is simply this, that there's a partial hardening that has come upon ethnic Jewish people. Now, by the way, that partial hardening has now been in effect for almost 2,000 years. And that partial hardening is going to continue until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And so what that means is that the reason why Paul was so zealous to reach the Gentiles is because he wanted to provoke the Jewish people to jealousy so that 
through his ministry, the fullness of the Gentiles would come in, and then his kinsmen, according to the flesh, would come in. So he had a zeal. He had, had an ulterior motive in preaching to the Hagoyim. Where was I? Okay. So the fullness of Gentiles are those Gentiles saved in Christ. Full number of the Gentiles are the branches that all get grafted into the olive tree. And then what happens is when all of that takes place, the partial hardening comes to an end, and there is a mass conversion of Jewish people to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, none of those views are heretical. All right? They're just not. They're all supported different levels of Scripture. So none of them are heretical. So if you meet somebody that thinks it's spiritual Israel, they're not a heretic, all right? They actually stand on pretty good ground, and they stand on something that's true in other places in Scripture, all right? But my estimation is that it's that last view, all right, what we could call majority of ethnic Jews at the end of the age view, right, all Israel, that that view is the most consistent with the argument and exegesis of Romans 11. Now, the next question, how will this happen? How will this happen? I thought that maybe when we got to this point, I would just look at you and just say, I don't know. All right, and there's a part of me that actually just does say, well, I'm not altogether sure, but I have some ideas. So I was really, really thankful to read in Charles Hodge. He says, I I like this, this is helpful to me. Great events are foretold, but the mode of their occurrence, their details, and their consequences can only be learned by the event. All right, (laughs) I'm like, amen, Charles Hodge. So, let me just say, I'm going to tread forward lightly, okay? As is my usual custom. Now, in order to answer the question, how will this happen, we have to look at the rest of 26 and 27, all right? Why do we have to look there? Because Paul connects this. So all Israel, verse 26, so all Israel will be saved just as it is written. Okay, so this, so Paul's saying, so this is, this is how it's written in the scriptures of how all Israel is gonna be saved, right? By the way, Just as it is written, what Paul does is he takes a compilation of Isaiah 59, 20 and 21, and Jeremiah 31, 34, and mashes them together, all right? Now, here's the first part. The deliverer will come from Zion, okay? Now... We'll dig into this in just a second, but let me just say that phrase, the deliverer will come from Zion, is not actually altogether clear. Because in the Isaiah 59 passage, the reference is most certainly to his first coming. 
to his first advent. So some people look at this and say, the deliverer will come from Zion, which is a reference to Christ's first advent. Others say the deliverer will come from Zion in some form of divine visitation for salvation. And then others say the deliverer will come from Zion is a reference to his second coming. All right? So we'll, we'll flush that out in just a minute. The how, though, how he saves them is actually pretty abundantly clear. It's through Jesus Christ. It's through the Messiah. It's through Israel's deliverer and rescuer. So the deliverer who will come from Zion, and what is he going to do? He's going to remove ungodliness from Jacob. That is, he's going to come to them in one, one way or another. We'll leave it that for that now. He will then come to them, and he will then turn them in repentance and take away their sin. Now, by the way, you have to understand that the fact that Jewish people are back in the land is not actually a fulfillment of the restoration of Israel. Okay. Now, I believe that Israel must exist. Okay? I mean, imagine if the Israelites were, let's say, let's say instead of the Israelites, um, uh, the, the Old Testament was about the Hittites. All right? And God delivered the Hittites through the Red Sea, and God brought the Hittites into the... And then you read your Bible and you go, well, like, where in the heck are the Hittites? <laughs> Have you ever seen one? I've never seen one. Where do they live? I, I don't know. Um, so I think it's important that the nation about which the whole Bible centers in terms of an ethnic people still exist, all right? But here's the thing, is that the promises of restoration to, the, to, to, to Israel or to the Jewish people are always associated with what we're reading right here, removing ungodliness from Jacob. Having a, a secular state, which that is the modern state of Israel, is a secular state, okay? It is not... In fact, there are more Orthodox Jews that live in New York than live in Israel. Okay? So, here's the second part. The deliverer comes from Zion, and what does he do? He turns them in repentance and takes away their sin. Matthew Henry, who wrote a long time ago, says, What greater kindness could he do to them than turn away all their ungodliness from them and to take away that which comes between them and all happiness and to take away their sin and to make a way for all good? This is the blessing of Christ that was sent to bestow upon the world and to tender it to the Jews in the first place to turn his people away from their iniquities. Okay, so how is all Israel saved? Well, first, the deliverer comes from Zion. Second, he actually turns them in repentance, takes away their sin, and then this is the, just the glorious part. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. In other words, 
not only does he turn them in repentance, not only does he, does he take away their sin, but what he does is he brings that, that, that mass of Jewish people into the new covenant. Okay? Oh, absolutely beautiful. So Israel is not going to be saved by Torah. Israel is not going to be saved by the old covenant. They're not going to be saved by Moses. They're going to be saved by Jesus bringing them in to a new and everlasting covenant. And so the blessings of the new covenant, the church has enjoyed for 2,000 years. At this point, I was thinking of pointing over to the Lord's Supper table and saying, and we get to commemorate it this afternoon, but next week, all right? So 2,000 years, the church has, has actually been the beneficiaries and have, they've, we have drank in the glorious benefits and realities of the new covenant through Jesus by his spirit. And one of these days that those new covenant blessings in Christ are going to finally come to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. John Murray, again, there is no suggestion of any privilege or status, but that which is common to Jew and Gentile in the faith of Christ. In other words, Murray is making it very clear that all of these redemptive benefits that we're seeing in this text, they actually come to everybody in the same way. There is no special status or privilege just because you have Abraham's DNA in you somewhere. Okay? And so, one of these days, there's going to be an in-gathering so that Jewish people become participants of the covenant that you and I have enjoyed from the moment of our new birth. Okay. In other words, none of this happens without believing in the Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to ask the question again. All right, so... In one sense, how does it happen? It happens through Jesus, turning them in repentance, right? Cleansing them of their sin, bringing them into the new covenant, right? That's, so how? And if that's all we had, that would be absolutely glorious. But I want to ask it again. So how does it happen? Now, here I want to be particularly cautious, thinking of Hodge's statement. But I think that Zechariah 12.10 may give us some insight. Listen to these words, the words of the prophet. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, of grace and supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn over him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. So, here's the second part of the how, and I offer it to you. I think the how looks like this. A great outpouring of God's Spirit that brings 
a mass of Jewish people to look upon Jesus as their Messiah. Can you imagine? Okay. So, how? Through Jesus, turning them in repentance, forgiving their sins, bringing them into the new covenant. How? Through a massive outpouring of his spirit, the spirit of grace and supplication, so that they'll look upon him whom they have pierced and they will mourn. Okay, the most tentative of all questions, when will this happen? Well, by my calculations, 2029. No, absolutely not, right? By the way, if it happens in 2029, it was, that was just an accident, okay? <laughs> okay, so, so now the, the when. when. When is this going to happen? So some people believe that it happens actually when Jesus physically returns a second time that many Jews will believe. And so they understand the Zechariah 12.10 passage looking on him is actually physically looking on the returning king who's come in power and glory, all right? So that's one idea, is that the win is at the second coming. Others point out that the Isaiah passage describes what Jesus accomplished in his first advent. And so, Johannes Albrecht Bengel, I hope a relative of mine, actually. I love Bengal. He says the deliverer or re- redeemer comes out of Zion and for good to Zion. But his coming has already been accomplished. That is the first coming. And the fruit will arrive at perfection at the proper time. In other words, everything necessary for this to happen has already been set in place by Jesus when he came the first time. By the way, that would be Matthew Henry's perspective as well. Others point out that the text says, in this way all Israel will be saved, and it is the rescuer coming out of Zion, turning them, forgiving them, bringing them into the new covenant by his spirit, and so they would point to a passage like this, Psalm 14, 7, oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores his captive people, Jacob will rejoice, Israel will be glad. And so this, this view is a little different, and it says that the Redeemer coming out of Zion is actually the, let's say, a peculiar divine visitation of Jesus by his spirit at a particular time, all right? So the Zion there is most certainly heavenly Zion. Now, by the way, the book of Revelation uses uh, Jesus coming in this way a number of times, not every time. Some of those times are his second coming, but there is a sense in which him coming is sometimes a coming in salvation, but sometimes it's a coming in judgment. All right, And so Charles Hodge says this. 
He says, the general idea uh, expressed in these passages is this. The God, the deliverer, shall come for the salvation of Jacob, that is of the Jews. And this is all that Paul desired to establish by these ancient prophecies. The apostle teaches that the deliverance promised of old to which the prophet Isaiah referred in the passage cited above included much more than the conversion of the comparatively few Jews who believed in Christ at the advent. The full accomplishment of the promise that he would turn away ungodliness from Jacob contemplated the conversion of the whole nation as such to the Lord. And so what Hodge is saying is, is that really what all Paul's appealing to is a mass conversion. He's not appealing to the first coming or the second coming. He's just appealing to the fact that Jesus is going to bring this salvation to them. John Gill, the, um, the guy that you were mentioning in, uh, in Interpreter's House, uh, with the with the grave look, that's always John Gill. You you see John Gill, and he looks he looks mean. All right, just these just grave. Spurgeon had a picture because Spurgeon pastored uh, Park uh, New Park Street Church where Gill had been a century before, and there was a big picture of John Gill, and he's got this this look on, in his eyes. He's just this glaring, and um, Spurgeon said while the artist was painting the portrait, John Gill spied an Arminian walking by. Okay. John Gill, most certainly the the greatest Baptist theologian of the 18th century, he he says the Jews will own Messiah and apply this passage to him. And they will receive him as the kinsman redeemer. Why? Because he'll convince them of their ungodliness, give them repentance for it, and remission of it. So this view says the Redeemer coming out of Zion simply denotes the saving, converting power of Christ. All right? So, I think that that's right. I think that's the the right view. So I don't think it's a reference particularly to his first appearance, although his first appearance makes it possible, obviously. And I don't think it's a reference to the second appearance, um, which may well happen very shortly after this, but rather it is a reference to a divine visitation by the Holy Spirit poured out upon Jewish people throughout the entire world where thousands and thousands, if not millions upon millions of Jewish people are turned away from their sin and put their faith in Jesus as their Messiah. So, as we think about this, we have to first of all be be cautious and be humble, all right? So, when I I didn't hold this view, I held the the second view, uh, what you could call the trickle view, all right, I used to say, I hope this view is right, <laughs> right? I didn't think it was, but I hope this view is right. Well, let me just say, I, I think this view is right, and, and to be honest with you, I, I desperately hope that it's right. We have to be humble. We have to respect other people's opinions. We have to be cautious. But I would say in conclusion that in light of I will pour out on the house of David 
and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. Taking that with, with Romans 11, 26b and 27 to be a reference to a powerful work of the spirit of God an outpouring the Holy Spirit on a stiff-necked, obstinate people who can't see the beauty of Messiah. And to think that there's coming a day when the veil will be removed. How is it removed? It's removed Here's here's the profound answer. It's removed through the preaching of the gospel. And so how are they going to hear unless someone preaches? And how are they going to preach unless they are sent, right? And so the idea is, is that this is not some magical thing. The outpouring of the Spirit, which our forefathers understood as directly connected to the preaching and the prayers of God's people, it is going to be through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ that many will hear and will have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, just like you and I did. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so it's through this outpouring that Jesus is going to turn many Jewish people to him and then will come about the covenant blessings, which I believe he describes in Acts 3.19 as so that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Now, in the overall scheme of things, this end of the age view of all Israel still ends up being a remnant. In other words, we've had 2,000 years of partial hardening. Tom Schreiner is most certainly correct when he says the promise of salvation of all Israel does not contradict Romans 9, which promises salvation to only a remnant of Israel, for Romans 11 promises salvation to not all Israel throughout history, but to all Israel at the end of history. Such salvation of all history is therefore still the salvation of only a remnant of Israel throughout history. But I want to say that even though I think that's true, how glorious it, sh- it will be and how hopeful that should make us. But what about today? What about today? Well, today is the day of salvation for you. Oh, most certainly, my heart thrills at the idea of the ascended Christ pouring out his spirit upon Jewish people so that their hearts are turned, the veil's taken away, and they trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Absolutely. But let's not forget that God still saves sinners today. And so what about today? Well, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day when Jesus can come for you. 
The deliverer can come out of Zion for you. The deliverer can come out of Zion for you and turn your heart in in repentance and actually cleanse you of all of your sins. Oh my goodness, do do you understand that that to, to, to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ is to actually have all of our filth washed away, all of our sins washed away, to actually have all of those sins cast as far as the east is from the west, to be cast in the sea of his forgetfulness. I will be merciful to you. I will remember your sins no more. To believe in Jesus today is to actually experience new life and the blessings of a new and everlasting covenant and to have the absolute confidence that your sins are completely forgiven today hey goyim good news today gentiles good news today believe in the savior today inherit the benefits of christ today experience the salvation of the Sins forgiven today. Experience new life today. Today's the day of salvation. Maybe you're just a little fella. And you know what you know about yourself? That you've told lies to your mom and dad. Oftentimes, kids raised in Christian homes, one of the very first things that that begins to convict their heart is that they are liars. Oh, don't talk about my children that way. Okay, I'll let David do it. The wicked go forth from the womb speaking lies. (laughs) That's that sweet little baby of yours. I remember one time I said, uh, we got time. We don't even have second service. So <laughs> one time I said, I said, my, and my mom was, was, was here. And, and I said that babies were vipers and diapers. <laughs> my Ashley's not a viper in diapers. <laughs> oh, you, you have no idea. young people you lie to your mom and dad you take stuff that's not yours your heart convicts you you know that you've done wrong and here's the good news that even when you're a little guy a little girl you can actually believe in Jesus and have the forgiveness of your sins right now today and you say well my sins are a lot bigger than when I was five it's all right. Jesus is a bigger savior than you could ever imagine And such a big savior, he can handle big sinners. You think your sin is really big? Maybe you've done just absolutely horrible things, right? Nobody's going to whitewash that. If you've done horrible things, you've done horrible things. You've sinned against God. You've transgressed the law of a holy God. Do you deserve, just like me, to go to hell forever? The answer is yes. But thanks be to God, Jesus saves big sinners Two, let me give you real hope. He saves tall sinners. He saves short sinners. 
He saves fat sinners. He saves skinny sinners. He saves bald sinners. He saves hairy sinners. He saves all kinds of sinners. Okay? And so you think, oh, you know what? My sin is so bad, it's terrible. And I want you to look outside and look at that snow. And I want you to listen to these words. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be washed white as snow. And so you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you inherit the benefits of saving grace. Today. And then you get grafted into the olive tree. You become a part of God's family forever. That is the best news you can ever hear. Don't let the devil pluck up that seed that's been planted. Don't rush out of here thinking that there's much more important things to do. The word of life has been preached to you this morning. For every single one of us in here, this this message, just like every message, takes you either one step closer to heaven or one step closer to hell. And so understand, today is the day of salvation. Do not delay. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you'd be mighty to save. Right now, we pray that the the deliverer would come forth from the heavenly Zion and open hearts and blind eyes and do exceedingly abundantly above all we could ask or think. Lord, be mighty to save even today. Save our kids. Lord, save save marriages. Save old people. Save, Lord, be mighty to save. Glorify your son by being mighty to save. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.